We are in a series called The Story. We're working through this book, this curriculum, which really is just walking our way through the story of the Bible. And it's in unison with our life groups that we're doing in this winter session. And so the chapter that we're about to jump into this week is called No Ordinary Man. And I will be looking tonight, if you've got your Bible or this, we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 is where we're going to park it. But uh, first off, we are dressed goofy. It's okay to laugh tonight. I laughed out loud as people were walking in during worship, right? It's okay to laugh. And so Vanessa, Pastor Vanessa, has this iconic flow uh, uh, costume that she's worn annually. And so she pivoted, right? They did a couple's costume, which is, we, we accept for, for, for married couples. But we are, our, our trunk or treat is sponsored by Progressive. So somebody had to pick up the baton, don the blue apron, and, and bear that burden. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, we are not sponsored by Progressive, as awesome as that would be. This blue apron is simply a nod to the show, The Bear, and the lead role, Carmi. Carmen, a.k.a. Carmi. And it's a show, it's a heavy show. It's about grief. It's about the loss of a brother and a loved one and them trying to rescue this restaurant together and, and all the dynamics, the wild and crazy dynamics. So, like, you may have what some might call, like, a comfort show, a show you come back to, uh, again and again, because it, it, it gives you warm fuzzies and it makes you comfortable. This is not that, okay? <laughs> For one, uh, there, they, this is a kitchen in downtown Chicago. A couple of these guys cuss like sailors. That might make you uncomfortable. But this show is discomfort. Like, it is, the first season is just stress because it's about grief, right? The show handles this loss of a brother, this loss of a friend, and how grief is a journey. It can take a season of your life. It can take a season of a, a literal show, right, to walk through grief. And so often we repress it, we push it down, and then it erupts, and the show examines what this does in your interpersonal relationships. And I think that's one of the reasons it's like sweeping, what is it, the Emmys? I watch enough of these awards shows. There's, there's, it's got well over a dozen nominations because grief is a universal experience. Loss is a universal experience, and it deals with it well. But I think another reason is because it's so well written, and there's, there's, profound character development. Like in season two, there's an episode called Forks. It might be my favorite uh, episode of any television ever. And Steph would tell you that's no big deal. I hardly watch TV shows, but hey, everybody got to have a favorite. So <laughs> that episode about the cousin, Richie, and just his transformation, it's powerful. And it's a reminder that in literature, in cinema, it's not always the, the galaxy far, far away or fighting uh, battles for the galaxy across multiverses or, or even just battles against the big bad guy that is the only thing that captures our attention and holds us and inspires us. Sometimes what can capture and inspire us is witnessing the complicated process of a character's growth and development as they go through universal experiences in life, like grief, like loss how they persevere, right? how they fight through it, the battles inside their head, how they press on and grow and develop, even if it happens in a grimy little kitchen in Chicago. And see, Halloween is this reminder of these characters in pop culture that captivate us. And can we really be honest, right? This is a holiday where we, as grown men and women, get to recapture our passion we had as kids for like playing pretend and dressing up. Like, I'm in my office before getting into my sermon notes drawing tattoos on myself like I'm back in middle school, right, <laughs> in geometry class, just ignoring and drawing them all over myself, right? We enjoy it. We, we, we put it on the kids, but then we turn to ourselves like, hey, what are we wearing, right? <laughs> what are we doing? What are we doing for our trunk? 
So Halloween, we dress, we pretend, we act like popular characters, often from shows and movies. And sometimes it can lead to the question, okay, well, if they made a show or a movie about your life, who would you want in that role? I might call on my distant cousin, my brother from another, the other Jay White, Jeremy Allen White, be like, hey, you want to play me? Or you might say like Brad Pitt, right, Ben Affleck. It's, it's never like Danny DeVito, like the guy they did for the, for the live action capture for Gollum. I want him to be me in my uh, biopic. It's always, it's always flattering. But the other question is, okay, who would you cast as Jesus? And yes, we've had a few in movies over the years playing the role of Jesus, but who would you cast as Jesus? And it's a trick question because I would tell you tonight that God has already nominated us for the role. To live and love like Jesus, to be witnesses of his resurrection, to be, as the Bible says, ambassadors, right, of Christ by living like him. That's the role he has for us. And the question is, will we accept the script? And I think the harder question tonight is, will we accept the character development that comes with it? The question I would pose to you from the outset tonight is, when your life story is complete and they're taking casting calls or who's gonna play you, all that, will there be character development? Because we're in a series called The Story, right? And it's an ongoing story that we're playing a part of, of what God is doing through his kingdom in our world. And the video intros to the study say, look, this is my story. This is your story. So when people look at your story and my story, will they see any notable character development? Because the character we're called to develop into and look like is Jesus. And that's no ordinary ask because Jesus was no ordinary man. And I want to read from the chapter, No Ordinary Man, here in the story. But again, if you've got your Bibles, it is Matthew chapter 5. Verses 1 through 12. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word whether it's in this book form or the Bible or you version, whatever it is, I thank you for your inspired word. And I thank you that you want to use it to speak to us tonight. <laughs> use me, Holy Spirit, a crooked stick to draw a straight line to Jesus Christ because we want to know you and be known by you here tonight. Speak through your word. Call us, give us hope, convict us, whatever it is we need tonight. I pray that you would do it in this place. And everybody said, amen. Now, the first thing we should know <clears throat> Here in this passage we just read is Jesus, he was drawing a crowd. We see in Matthew 4 that Vanessa kind of ta- uh, touched on last week that Jesus had announced his mission. He had uh, selected his disciples, his co-laborers, and he had gone on a, a, a teaching and healing tour through Galilee that had gathered quite a crowd. Quite a big crowd was following him around when we get to this passage in Matthew 5. But here's the thing about crowds. They're curious, but they're not necessarily committed. And Jesus isn't looking for another face in the crowd. He wants a committed relationship. The Sermon on the Mount for his disciples was instruction. 
But for the crowd that was going to overhear these teachings, it was an invitation. It was an invitation for, for them to ask the question, who is Jesus? But Jesus wanted the answer to the question, who am I to you? Who is Jesus to you? And that's the same question I'd extend tonight. Because one thing is for certain, Jesus was no ordinary man. Jesus rose to enough notability with a big enough following that historians and, and serious people <laughs> agree that he existed. But it was in the first century. He was born into a carpenter's family. He never held office, never led an army. The one time he was before the political powers, he was bound and beaten and about to be crucified. So he lived a pretty obscure life. But what we do know through and what the consensus agrees upon through historians was that he taught ethics and he taught spirituality. He was at the bare minimum a teacher, bare minimum. And notably, that was enough to garner a large following in Jesus's day. Because teachers in Jesus' day, they doubled as entertainers. And maybe that sounds lame, but people didn't just go to listen to these people like Jesus speak to learn. They went to be entertained. These people did not have cell phones. <laughs> they did not have televisions, radios. They didn't even have, like, printed books. So they would go and listen to these brilliant minds speak and be entertained. Like, they were the Brad Pitts and, and, and Miley Cyruses and the, and the celebs that people were talking about on Entertainment Tonight. And the crowds that witnesses, witnessed Jesus preach firsthand and teach firsthand, the Bible says that they were astonished. Jesus was an excellent teacher. He was no ordinary man, and he was no ordinary teacher. Matter of fact, in Luke, it says at age 12, he's schooling religious teachers in the temple at age 12. And then when he starts his ministry at age 30, it was, again, extraordinary. So much so that his teachings have been adopted not just by Christians in the church, but by prominent figures and even religions throughout history. So much so that 2,000 years later, some people, like millions of people, center their lives around him. I mean, let's be serious. That's wild to think about. It's wild to think about. But people can try to disprove that Jesus was divine, that he was God in, in flesh, but they can't disprove that millions of people over thousands of years have had their lives profoundly transformed by him and his teachings. He was no ordinary man. He was no ordinary teacher. And Jesus taught in various ways. He often taught in parables, stories and pictures that would teach lessons. But here at the Sermon on the Mount that we just opened with, he speaks plainly. This is like his, his kingdom manifesto, and the Beatitudes are like the preamble. It's his invitation into the kingdom and kingdom living. And you might say, what we just read makes for a pretty awkward invitation. Poor, persecuted, Meek, mourning, like, this is your invitation? <laughs> but Jesus, he doesn't, see, it's powerful. He doesn't just teach these principles. He then goes on to live them as if to prove the validity of what he said. Jesus' ministry had poverty, meekness, mourning, mercy, purity, peacemaking, persecution. It was all throughout Jesus' life and ministry. And it's a life <laughs> that we're called to imitate. That's why the Beatitudes are included into what we talk about here at City Life as five growth lists. And our discipleship uh, uh, book here, right, Praxis, written by Pastor Freddie, speaks to these five growth lists we see in Scripture that help us to grow into 24 virtues and characteristics that help us look like Christ. And the Beatitudes are the first one we're given by Jesus here in Matthew 5. We see humble, emotionally honest, meek, desiring righteousness, merciful, truthful, peaceful, and devoted. That sparks the list. And then these other lists in the New Testament, they, they echo and add to the list of these virtues we're called to adopt if we're going to take on the character of Christ. 
But we see then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pivots to this picture of salt and light, and it speaks to the influence we're supposed to have as disciples. And then he pivots to the righteousness we're supposed to have as disciples, which is supposed to exceed that of the religious leaders of that day, which was quite the statement. But it's all leading up to his charge and claim in Matthew 4, excuse me, 5, 48, where he says, therefore, right? This has all been building up to this. Therefore, you shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Be perfect. Not just be perfect. Be perfect as God is perfect. That's about as intimidating as it gets. Like if this is a teacher, they grade on an impossible curve. And if this is like the role I'm called to play, I'm inclined to pass on the script. We shrink from the magnitude because be perfect just sounds like a, a, a recipe to feel inadequate and deal with guilt and shame because we're not going to measure up. But here's the game changer. These seeming extraordinary ideals are accompanied by extraordinary grace because Jesus was no ordinary man. Now, you see, most unordinary, dare I say, extraordinary people, they will make <laughs> me feel inadequate. Right? That's why they're extraordinary, because there's got to be some ordinary people to make them all extra. <laughs> like I think of uh, the Channel to Brazil banquet we hosted down the hall. Marky Mark, Mark Marquez, the, the executive director of Channel to Brazil, has been ministering there for 40 years. We interviewed him the last uh, fifth Saturday, and it's on our YouTube channel. You can go watch it. This man has stories, testimonies, stacks on stacks of them from 40 years of ministry in Brazil that started with just giving coffee and bread to street children, and now ministers to hundreds of them. I leave that banquet thinking, what am I doing with my life? My life feels exceedingly ordinary compared to this guy who should be like Time Magazine's person of the year, right, in my eyes. And I could imitate him and I could try to imitate his ministry, but here's the thing with most extraordinary people. Try as we might, we can't become like them. We can't become them. The, the, the talent or gifting that makes them extraordinary is not transferable. If I travel back in time, and spent months or even years with, with Einstein or Stephen Hawking, I'm not going to, like, get their IQ through osmosis. I could hang with LeBron James for months and years. He's my age, doing ridiculous things athletically in the NBA. That's not in my future. <laughs> I'm not dunking any basketball on any hoop right now, and it's, it's not in my future. No matter how much time I spend or, or learn from LeBron James, I could study his game. I'm never going to be a world-class athlete. That's what makes him extraordinary and his grind, but whatever. If I spend years with Stevie Wonder and, and Bono, right, I will never, no matter how much time I spend with them, be able to write songs and sing them like they do. They have this incredible gift. They're extraordinary at what they do, and it sets them apart. And see, with extraordinary people, we can be left feeling inadequate. But what's extra extraordinary about Jesus is he's, again, no ordinary human, and he not only wants to make us like him, but he opens the door to the possibility. Unlike other extraordinary people, what makes him extraordinary is transferable. To just hit on a couple, like he transfers his relationship with God the Father. Early on in this series in John chapter 1, it says, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The prayer he teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, our Father. He says, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy and perfect. Jesus also transfers his thoughts and his mind, which is wild to think about. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, who can know the Lord's thoughts? I, mean, I don't know. But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. The list could go on and on, but most importantly to us, to me, and to you, Jesus transfers his righteousness. We sang it in one of these songs, the idea that in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, for God made Christ who never sinned 
to be the offering for our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, all of this is possible is the verse we hit on earlier in the welcome home moment. You turn just a couple verses before that. Those that are in Christ are new creations. The old is gone and the new has come. And we see that with the first creation in Genesis. When God creates humans, it's the one part of creation that it says he made in his image, in God's image. You ever think about what it was like to be human in the garden before sin made in God's image? Like what is your capacity What is your IQ at that point, right? Before your body and the world have been struck by sin, what would it be like to live like that and love like that? And see, we get the commandment in Exodus to not make uh, images of God, which is more about intention and our inclination to idolatry than it is works of art, but that's another sermon for another time. But I believe one reason God made that command among many is a reminder that we don't necessarily need to make more images of God. We're walking around millions of them, (laughs) the human beings that have been made in his image. And again, God already nominated us for this role to be holy as he is holy, to live as Jesus did. He wants to restore what's been broken. So the question is, what we posed earlier, will we accept the character development that comes along with that role? See, Jesus didn't just die so we would sin less. He died so we could live more fully. And all of this is possible because Jesus was no, no ordinary man. And unlike other extraordinary people in history, what made him extraordinary was not statistics or inventions, but his legacy is on the canvas of the human soul. See, when you hear the word of commission in the church, your mind automatically goes to the Great Commission, right? Our call to make disciples of all the nations, teaching them everything we've learned and we know. But when I, as an artist, hear the word commission, I think of a commission portrait. Somebody pays you money to paint you something. And the one God gives us is not a landscape, it's not a still life, but it's, it's a portrait. And it's not some random portrait like the one I did of <laughs> Jeremy Allen White last month or, or a commission portrait of a loved one like I've done earlier this year. No, the commission portrait that God gives us for the canvas of our life is a portrait of Jesus Christ. Christ is our model given to us to paint a portrait of. His character, his love, his heart, his mind, Because we read Matthew 5, 48, and we rightly think, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, right? How on earth do I live perfect like an eternal, uh, omni-everything, immortal God in my day-to-day life? Like, how do I even transfer something I don't even understand and I can't see? How do I quantify? How do I imitate that? It's like being asked to paint a portrait of somebody you've never laid eyes on. But we have Jesus. And the early church understood that Jesus, God in the flesh, was their model. John in 1 John 2, 6 says, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Peter in his letter to the church in 1 Peter 2, 21 says, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example and you must follow in his steps. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, and you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. And it's notable that Paul follows up this verse about imitating Christ and 1 Corinthians 13 with one of those growth lists when he starts to talk about the qualities of, of love and Peter follows up his command to imitate Christ in his very next letter to the church and he gives our, his growth list because they understood that this call to portray the heart of Christ, we're gonna have to grow significantly into that. Our script of our life is gonna have to contain a whole lot of character development and we'll grow in that development. Again, you can grab this book in the back of the sanctuary. You'll grow in that development as you uh, adopt those 24 virtues and a whole lot else in that book. And it sounds daunting, but we know it's possible 
because we literally see it in the early church. In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it reads, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. This suffix, Ianos, means diminutive. So they're literally calling them little Christs, like Christ minimes, <laughs> Christ clones. See, following Jesus and being a disciple, the early church understood, yes, we're to follow these, these commands and these rules, but it's about becoming a certain kind of person, a person who portrays Christ, who another person would look at and say, that's a Christian. That's a, that's a little Christ, just walking around, just, just like Christ would. See, the Great Commission tells us to teach everything we know. But just like Jesus didn't just teach the Beatitudes, he lived them. We teach with an increased effectiveness when we portray the lesson we're teaching with our lives. When we've taken seriously this commission to present a portrait of Jesus with our life. It was Aristotle that once said, the soul does not think without a picture. Whether you've heard that quote or not, you've probably heard the, the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words. And really, that's not far from reality and what studies have shown us. We remember pictures long after words have left us. 90% of the information stored in your brain is visual. People think using imagery. People learn more effectively with imagery. Most visual aids have been found to help learning by 400%. See, a person may not recall a verse or a point in a sermon, but their mind can recall an image. And similarly, there's something true about people seeing us live our lives as Jesus did, as Jesus would. And we do that, again, through the Beatitudes, the fruits of the Spirit, these growth lists. It's like the palette of colors we paint with this commissioned portrait on the canvas of our life. But here's the issue. Let me get all artsy on you. <laughs> Any portrait or painting will fail if there's, there's not proper perspective. And perspective in art, it, it speaks to how do you take a three-dimensional subject and put it on a two-dimensional piece of paper, canvas, whatever it may be. How do you make a two-dimensional image of something that's 3D? And to do that, there's three kinds of perspective you have to be mindful of. You have to be mindful of, of linear perspective, color perspective, and atmospheric perspective. Jesse's up there in the online, he teaches art, so he can expand on that if you need that. But tonight I wanna focus on, in life, there are three perspectives we need to cling to if we're gonna paint uh, and capture and reflect a portrait of Jesus that is gonna show him to the world and, and play that role. And these are not groundbreaking, but let me tell you, I need them all the time. These reminders about these perspectives I need to walk in. If I'm going to paint a portrait of Jesus with my life where people say, oh, that's a little, that's a little Christ. I have to keep these perspectives. And the first is I had to keep a healthy and honest perspective of myself. Here's the thing. Most portraits of Jesus often look like Carmen from the Bear. Right? A dirty blonde, blue eyes. Y'all might laugh, but I'm serious. Slap a beard and a halo on that. And it's like most of the <laughs> portraits of Jesus we've seen in Western culture over the last centuries. And I'll take that down before, like, it goes viral for all the wrong reasons. And we look ridiculously irreverent. I'm not already up here, like, wearing a costume. So, But I've, <laughs> I've mocked blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus in the past, and for good reason, because let's be serious. White Jesus is one way that through American history, racists, slave owners, nationalists have all been able to say, well, I'm a Christian. It's easy to do that when Jesus looks like you. It's a little harder to when he's a, a, a guy with melanin from the Middle East. But I remember years back feeling the prick of conviction like, yeah, you might mock these portrayals of Jesus in movies and what he looked like, but what about when you misrepresent his heart? You might mock his blonde hair and blue eyes in these movies or these paintings, but what about when you misrepresent the character of Christ with the way you live? Isn't that a little more uh, important? 
Like take the plank out of your own eye. And this means I don't just need to take a long look in the mirror for a fixed perspective of myself. I need to take a long look at Jesus. If I'm painting a portrait of Jesus with my life, what does my portrayal currently look like? And is it accurate? In that moment, I was convicted to press forward in character development. And luckily, we're not left to wander. Again, the Bible gives us these five growth lists and we get the whole New Testament about how we can portray Jesus with our life. We aren't left to wing it. It's like paint by numbers, right? Where you just, you just, or a coloring book, you just stay inside the lines. You put this color here, this color there. And maybe you hear that and you're like, that sounds kind of depressing, right? Like we're building an army of clones or we're mass producing the same portrait. But God created your uniqueness. He's not here to destroy it. Right? He wants to transform your character, not necessarily your personality. I emphasize that because that means within the church there will absolutely be diversity of personalities, diversity of life experiences, of life perspectives. There will be a diversity of giftings and callings, and that diversity is what makes the church beautiful and, and dynamic. But for all the diversity in personality and diversity in character and, and, and diversity in experience, we as Christ followers are, are not called to a diversity in character. No, we're all called to Christ-like character. We're called to look like Christ. See, when we talk about being authentic in the culture at large, so often it's an expression of, well, this is who I am, right? This is me being unapologetic and honest about where I'm at, and, and, and I'm keeping it real, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? But, but just keeping it real can keep us from character development. Because for the Christ follower, this is only half of the equation, right? Where I'm at now, but the other half is who am I becoming, See, Ephesians 4, through 24 speaks to this, and it speaks to our character development in a powerful way. <laughs> Hi, Raj. It says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self. And I love how the message version closes verse 24, as God accurately reproduces his character in you. When it comes to character development, authenticity isn't just about being honest about where we are or where we have been. It's being honest about where am I going? Where am I headed? What character development do, do I need to paint this portrait of Christ as God reproduces his character in me? See, being authentic in this way will, again, it will be unique in each of us and in each of our journeys. And we will ha all have areas where our behavior and our belief don't yet line up. Love you, buddy. <laughs> I'll see you later. As we do that together in the church, it requires, it requires us to align this second perspective. For us to paint a healthy portrait of Jesus with our lives, we need a healthy perspective of others as well. Like, I don't know what Jesus' IQ was, but clearly it was off the charts. Again, he was in the temple at 12, just like schooling religious leaders. It's nuts. They had like the Torah memorized, and Jesus is walking in like, hey, you thought about this? But what set Jesus apart from other brilliant teachers is that the legacy he left in history had more to do with his EQ, right? EQ is the self-awareness and ability to manage your emotions and the stresses in your own life so that you're able to recognize and empathize and be compassionate about and love other people well. You can go listen to any of the effective conversion sermons from the series Shema about taking responsibility for your own emotional health. But EQ is more than just self-awareness and self-mastery. <laughs> a gift of EQ and IQ that's only focused on ourselves becomes self-absorbed, right? There's a thin line between self-care, which is beautiful, and self-absorption, and, and too often we cross over it. Because Jesus, he displayed empathy, compassion, 
He had this ability to connect with anyone and everyone. And not just that, he had a willingness to lay down his life for everyone. See, we aren't just given the mind of Christ according to Scripture. We're called to have the heart of Christ, to love God, but also to love people well, as Jesus did. We don't have time to dig through it fully, but later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has an entire passage, an entire moment where he speaks to worry and stress and anxiety. Worry is one of the most common negative emotions in humans through history. He's talking about it then. It's still relevant today. We've gotten no better. A recent Time magazine looked at the effects of anxiety on our bodies and showed how so many of us are just killing ourselves because of stress and worry. So I love that Jesus speaks to worry and stress in the most famous sermon of all time. God cares about your worries, cares about the stressors in your life, big and small, because that can derail, well, our physical and emotional health. But I love how Jesus then immediately pivots to how we relate to others. One, how we judge others, and then secondly, the the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's EQ. That's emotional intelligence. And then Jesus closes out the Sermon on the Mount saying that those who who don't just listen but act on and apply these teachings are like, a, a again, we sang about it tonight, a house built on a firm foundation. That when the storms come, they won't topple because they're built on a rock. They're built on a firm foundation. And that points to the third perspective that I'll close with tonight. To paint a portrait of Jesus with our life and to do it accurately, we need a healthy perspective of our circumstances. Because storms, as he says at the close of his sermon, they're going to come. The promise of Jesus we hardly ever, you know, like frame and hang in our houses is you will have trouble (laughs) in John 16. Behold, he has overcome the world, right? That is important too. But he says, you're going to have trouble. And if we don't remember that, then when trouble does come, we can begin to lose our grip on the other promises of God because we think if all this trouble is happening, either God's asleep at the wheel or his promises weren't true or I screwed up because we forget that trouble, it's par for the course. It's going to come. You follow Jesus long enough, you know, the disciples experienced literal storms. They experienced uh, troubles. A lot of them were martyred. You begin to realize that God is less concerned with your comfort than he is with your character development. In fact, in some ways, your comfort zone is a danger zone. Because rarely when we're comfortable are we being stretched and growing. And it's why, again, the stories we're captivated by in literature and film, they're not about somebody sitting on a couch or just being comfortable all the time. It's about people that dare to dream big and pursue huge purposes and fail and get back up and get hit by storms of life and are stretched by trials. And in the process, they experience character development. You know, in 1987, a group of scientists and engineers set out to create the perfect biosphere, right? Like the perfect artificial ecosystem. They were doing it in Arizona, and it spanned over three miles. And in this ecosystem they were trying to make perfect, there was climate control, there was natural light, nutrient-rich soil, purified air, purified water, the whole nine. But then they started to plant trees in this, in this perfect carefully crafted ecosystem. And what they found is these trees would keep growing to a certain height and then falling over. All right, cool, that's weird. Plant some more trees, get to a certain height, they fall over. What they came to realize is that trees in nature, right, their natural habitat, they're buffeted by winds, they endure storms. And when that happens, the bark gets thicker, the roots grow deeper. Without adversity, trees atrophy. How much does that apply to us growing our character and growing more Christ-like? 
If I wrote my own script, I would write out a lot of the storms that Stephanie and I have been through over the past few years. I would not have included those. I would not have excluded that wind over there and that storm over here. But without adversity, we will atrophy. We become weak, remain undeveloped. See, without a healthy perspective of others, our portrayal will be crippled due to apathy. But without a healthy perspective of our circumstances and storms, we can atrophy. Right? Apathy will cripple your perspective of others, and atrophy will cripple your perspective of circumstances, and you won't grow, and your portrait will be out of whack. Why is the eyeball over there? Looking more like a Picasso. <laughs> but when we realize God cares more about our character development than our comfort, we realize that, that storms, storms aren't some sign that we're off course, but they're part of the course. They're how we grow. It's part of our character development. But as we land the plane, I'm not going to stand between kids and their candy. Turning some children of the corn in here or something. But uh, let's circle back to that first perspective. If we're going to paint a, a, a portrait of Jesus that, that points people to him and glorifies him, we need that healthy perspective of ourselves. And, and let's say hypothetically you were reading through those growth lists and you're like, all right, bet. Writing down all the things you want to grow in and all the virtues you want to grow in. You vow you'll be different. You decide this week I'm going to be more patient with my spouse. I'm more kind to my kids. I'm going to make it to every church event, whether it's life group or the weekend service. I'm going to spend more quality time in the Bible, more quality time in prayer. And when it doesn't happen or we get overwhelmed because we're trying to check all those boxes, we become overwhelmed. We throw our hands up and we can embrace old patterns. Right? When you realize how far you've got to go to look like Christ, you can become distraught over your development. I mean, let's be honest. Let me tell you that time I referenced earlier when I was convicted about how am I betraying the heart of Jesus and his character to the ones I love, I was convicted, but I didn't feel condemned. And those are two vastly different things, right? Condemnation would trash the portrait, say, I'm done. <laughs> it's, it's, it's over. But conviction realizes, oh, I messed up that perspective here. I mixed this color bad over here, but the portrait's still in progress, right? My character's still being developed. You know, the great thing about oil paintings is I can do a terrible job for hours one night and I can come back the next day and just paint right over it. <laughs> oil paintings are, are gracious and forgiving. You know, the most famous portrait of all time, Da Vinci's Mona Lisa, uh, they've studied it and it has anywhere between 20 to 40 layers of paint. Like, what if he stopped at eight? What if he stopped at 12? Would it be as good as it was? Would we even know it, it exists? Or would it just be, eh, it's all right, because he's quit early. Trust me, another artist will co-sign this. Again, you can ask Jesse. There comes a time in every work of art where you're like, what am I doing? <laughs> what is this? Do I even know what I'm doing? There was this trending audio on social media that all these artists were using called the creative process. And I share it because if I'm honest, this is how creative development parallels like us trying to develop the character of Christ in our lives. And it goes like this. This is awesome. This is tricky. The inevitable this is awful. Every piece of art ever. Like, this is awful. And then you're, I am awful at this. I'm an awful person. And then you're like, this might be okay. And then by the time you put in all the work, this is, this, is, this is awesome. But at some point in the process, it like becomes personal. You question everything. Like, why do I even try? We question ourselves. We question our ability. And I share that because I think it speaks to an aspect, again, of our pursuit of the character of Christ. It's what one theologian called, and I'll never forget it, can't tell you who the theologian was, but I'll never forget what he said. <laughs> Restful dissatisfaction. Positionally, we are justified before God. Righteous before him. We can rest in that because of what Jesus already did. We can rest in that eternally. 
And yet in another way, our perfection is still pending. We're still growing. Hebrews 10, 14 says that Jesus had made perfect forever those that are being made holy. It's wild because in the original language, it's basically saying Jesus has made perfect forever those that are still being made perfect. He's made holy forever those that are still being made holy. It's a paradox, but it's powerful because am I satisfied with where I am in, in, in looking like Christ and my personal holiness? No, not at all. But can I find rest that Jesus has made me perfect forever in God's sight? Absolutely. Look, we're absolutely called to character development with this aim of loving and living like Christ. But the, the trap the enemy puts before us that I know I've stumbled in and people stumble in again and again is to put our character development or lack thereof before our acceptance. See, I pray for Raj every morning. The little guy was trying to rush up here and probably give me a hug or whatever. Cutest kid in the world. Every morning I get him ready for school and before the bus comes, I pray for him. And then when I say amen, I tell him, look, buddy, nothing you do today can make me love you less. Nothing you do today can make me love you more. So just go have fun, right? When you come home, daddy's going to love you. I want him to live like at ease in light of that. God wants to remind you tonight similarly, similarly that you've been declared righteous through what Jesus did on the cross. You don't operate for approval. You don't try to earn it. No, you operate from assurance. Blessed assurance, as the song says. You don't uh, work to earn God's approval. You, you, you strive for Christ-like character and development in full assurance of the grace that's already given. And that assurance is beautiful to live with because let me close and, and let me be transparent. Like, my perspective isn't always like, oh, this, this storm I'm in, it's growing my character. You know, like, this is swell. No, I'm like, God, is it good enough that I'm not crazy? Like, juice isn't insane. That's a win. Like, I'm not always, like, thinking about, yeah, you know what? This is beautiful. No. And you may think, too, like, I'm going through storms. I'm just clinging to God's promises. I'm seemingly bunkered down. I'm not mindful of some, some grand portrait on some platform that people are witnessing. But let me remind you what we started with, right? Sometimes what can capture and inspire people isn't galactic battles or, or battling some big bad guy, but it's witnessing the complicated process of a person's growth as they go through universal experiences in life, day-to-day -day life, like grief and loss and hard times, and how they persevere, how you persevere, how you press on, how you fight the battles inside your head, how, how you keep loving in spite of loss, and how you grow and develop your character. Your faith-filled perseverance can paint a beautiful picture of, of Jesus who endured the cross for us, for me and for you. So God, I pray tonight, God, give us restful dissatisfaction. God, may we never become so fixed on our standing before you and our justification through Jesus that we forsake the call to look like him and the character development that that, that demands. And may we never become so fixated on, on the way we have to go, the distance remaining, that, that we forget our position before you, that we are righteous, we are loved due to the work of Jesus on the cross. God, where we feel poor in spirit, <laughs> right, aware of our deficiencies and in need of you, where we mourn our brokenness, Lord God. Help us to remember the Beatitudes we read that you call that, that those people blessed. And those that, that mourn their brokenness and know their, their, their need for you, God, you comfort them. You meet them in that. And I pray that tonight where, where maybe we're discouraged, we're distressed, that, that, that we've got such a long way to go. I pray you meet us here tonight, God, again. <laughs> Let us be known by you and know you in this place. And God, give us a healthy perspective 
that helps us paint, God, a portrait of you to the world. Where our color palette is missing virtues, help us to, to add them. Lord God, where our painting feels muddied, give us patience, give us perseverance. Where our circumstances have us feeling lost, remind us that they're developing our character. God, may we imitate Jesus and his love and his character to, to, to those around us till they would point at us like they did the church at Antioch and say, look at those little Jesuses, those Christians. God, if a picture is worth a thousand words, may we paint a picture of you and our love in and through our lives so that we can make Jesus easy to find here in the 757, not just as a church, but as individuals living and loving like you. Jesus, we want every knee to bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord to your glory and the glory of God the Father. So God, I thank you for that opportunity we had to respond earlier. And God, I pray that if there is an area we need to respond now, maybe it's one of those, those areas on the, on the growth list. Maybe it's we've never, ever responded to what Jesus did. Or there's a storm we simply need prayer for. God, I pray that you would move us to respond again here in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.